Good day to you. Hope you're having a wonderful day. We have been reading in the book of Hebrews, and we, we finished Hebrews chapter 13, the last chapter in our last study session, and uh, we're going to go with the uh, summary. I've got a summary here of the book of Hebrews, and um, I'm just going to start off with chapter 1. Chapter 1 is about the superiority of Christ and his authority. If you look here in verses... Well, actually, you know, let's take a moment. The whole book really is about Jesus and the superiority of Jesus and his covenant and how it is so much better than the law and how it is the fruition or the completion of Abraham of the promise to Abraham and the promise to uh, that was made even to the Israelites in the law I mean this was the culmination the only thing we're missing is Jesus coming back and taking us all to heaven that is the absolute final culmination but but here the fulfillment of the promise and was really made through Jesus and his sacrifice we're gonna we're going to see all that, I hope, as we go through this summary. So again, chapter 1 is all about the superiority of Christ and his authority. And we can see just quick examples of this in verse 5, which I'm having trouble seeing. And I, there's nothing wrong with my eyes. I'm just missing it. I apologize. So verse 5 in chapter 1. For to which of the angels did the Father ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten, fathered, you, established you as a Son with kingly dignity? And again did he ever say to the angels, I shall be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me? Now this is again showing Christ being superior over, over angels at this particular point. Um, now let's go down to verse 13. And verse 13, But to which of the angels has the Father ever said, Sit at my right hand, together with me, in royal digni dignity, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, in triumphant conquest? Now, I am reading from the Amplified Bible. I did forget to mention that, and I, I apologize. But, again, he's just relating that Jesus is higher and more superior even to the angels. Now, in chapter 2 the Hebrew writer talks about Jesus how he humbled himself and he tasted death for all of us giving us salvation and that he understands us and can help us and you can see this at the beginning and the end of the chapter um, with verse 1 for this reason that is because of God's final revelation in his son Jesus and because of Jesus superior superiority to the angels we must pay much closer attention than ever to the things we've heard so that we do not in any way drift away from the truth. Now the truth is Jesus, of course, and we have to give heed to that. But also, down in verse 18, let me, let me get down there, because he himself in his humanity has suffered and in being tempted, he is able to help and provide immediate assistance to those who are being tempted and exposed to suffering. So, 
This is because Jesus came, he's God in the flesh, came, humbled himself to be a human, to, to actually serve, and then to give himself up for us. And, and that will be touched upon again later. Um, then in chapter 3, we have Jesus. The writer is talking about Jesus as our high priest. And I'm just going to read the first three verses of this chapter. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, thoughtfully and attentively, consider the apostle and high priest whom we confessed as ours when we accepted him as Savior, namely Jesus. He was faithful to him who appointed him apostle and high priest, as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Yet Jesus has been considered worthy of much greater glory and honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house. So Jesus is, you know, again our high priest, and he is greater than Moses. He's above Moses. And then we are warned later, we are warned against um, unbelief. And if you look at verse 12, take care, brothers and sisters, that there are not Okay, let me reread that, sorry. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there not be in any one of you a wicked, unbelieving heart which refuses to trust and rely on the Lord, a heart that turns away from the living God. And instead, we should be encouraging one another and helping one another. So we should not be turning away um, because... You know, when we when we have a hard heart and we turn away, then as as mentioned later in the in the chapter, that uh, we can end up as the children of Israel in the desert who never entered the promised land. They were never taken into the promised land. Uh, that generation died off in the desert, and the next generation entered the promised land. So. Then in verse, uh, not verse, in chapter 4, chapter 4 is about, he speaks of the true Sabbath rest being found in our faith and trust in the Lord, not in a specific day or in certain rituals, but actually being found in our faith and in the trust in the, our trust in the Lord. If we look at verses 9 through 11, there we go. So there remains a full and complete Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has once entered his rest has also, enter, has also rested from the weariness and pain of his human labors, just as God rested from those labors uniquely his own. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest of God to know and experience for ourselves, so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience as those who died in the wilderness. In other words, by following and trusting and believing in God, we, we can enter into that Sabbath rest, knowing that God is taking care of us, knowing that we do not need to worry about all these things that are going on. Of course, we're going to have to do our part and make our efforts, but <clears throat> we know that in the end, every, we, we rely on God for everything, and that everything will work out the way it's supposed to, one way or the other. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what happens. Either way, God works all things to our betterment, and, and it will work out to our favor. 
even if even if all we end up doing is just going to heaven i think that's that that saying that's all we end up doing i, I think that's a, an awful way to say that probably but you know what i mean i mean that's that's the goal that's where we want to be that's where we where, where we want to go so but we can enter into that rest that sabbath rest because we can trust and have faith in god and have confidence in him that he is watching over us over us and taking care of us so then also in chapter 4 he talks about jesus again our high priest, one that understands and sympathizes with us, that we can enter God's throne room through Jesus. We can go to the throne of God to find mercy and grace. And that is found down actually towards the end of the chapter, verses 15 and 16. So let me see. Okay. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and understand our weaknesses and temptations, but one who has been tempted, knowing exactly how it feels to be human, in every respect as we are, yet without committing any sin. Therefore let us with privilege approach the throne of grace, that is, the throne of God's gracious favor, with confidence and without fear, so that we may receive mercy for our failures, and find his amazing grace to help in times of need, an appropriate blessing coming just at the right moment. And that's, I mean, that's that's what, that's another thing that Jesus gives us there, that, that God gives us through the Lord. The ability to go to him in prayer and find that mercy and grace, that forgiveness. Now in chapter 5, this talks about um, Jesus being the perfect high priest without sin, and there's there's a contrast to to human uh, priests here. Let me find chapter. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me find verse three. And because of this human weakness, talking about human priests, he is required to offer sacrifices for sins for himself as well as for the people. He must offer a sacrifice for himself. I think even before. He can offer the sacrifice for the people because, you know, they're a human priest. They're not perfect. They've made mistakes, you know, whereas Jesus has been made an eternal priest like uh, akin to or in the order of Melchizedek. And we can see that in verse 9 and 10. Let me find that. Okay. So, and having been made perfect, uniquely equipped, and prepared as Savior, and retaining his integrity amid opposition, he became the source of eternal salvation, an eternal inheritance to all those who obey him, being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is our eternal, our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek, as as saying as akin to Melchizedek, who was who was a priest of the Lord way back before the law, and and very little was known about him. And Abraham gave him his offering and his his tithe, I believe. Um, so so we're actually in a way getting a better relationship with God through the Lord than even 
even that, but in, nonetheless, he is an eternal priest in that manner, in that we go to him, and through him we go to God. Then in verse 14, the final verse, um, well, actually, it's not just in that verse, I'm sorry. So in the, at the end of the chapter, uh, the, the Hebrew writer is encouraging these Hebrews to, uh, to grow beyond, you know, grow beyond, to mature and grow beyond just the milk of the word to, uh, to learn more than just about, you know, the rituals and, uh, and salvation, but to move on into deeper territory and learn how to, you know, how to truly live and be and act and, and how to follow the Lord and, and, you know, learn the, the deeper concepts and ideas in the Word. Um, and he says this here in verse 14, but solid food is for the spiritually mature whose senses are trained by practice to distinguish between what is morally good and what is evil. And so we need to grow and mature because we need to apply this to us because this does apply to us. We need to grow and mature beyond just the milk of the word, just the initial initial message of the word that, you know, God loves us, God cares about us, Jesus cares about us, he gave himself for us, you know, we need to be baptized, you know, but beyond just salvation, we need to learn further, we need to learn more, and as we learn, we will learn, you know, we'll get more into that depth and the meat of the word, and we'll understand better, um, as we learn and grow, we'll understand better why some of the things we should do, why we should do them. All right, <clears throat> so in chapter 6, he talks about, um, he warns basically about falling away due to, you know, we break these chapters up, they, they were broken up by men, but if you'll, if you'll notice, um, chapter 6 starts with, therefore, tying back to what he had just said about the need to grow into maturity and move beyond just the milk of the word. And he's warning about falling away. And this, this, there's actually a good set of verses here. It's uh, four. It's actually four through eight. But uh, let's look at uh, four through six first. Okay, so verse four. For it is impossible to restore to repentance those who have once been enlightened spiritually, and who have tasted and consciously, consciously experienced the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted and consciously experienced the good word of God and the powers of the age of the world to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to bring them back again to repentance since they again nail the Son of God on the cross for as far as they are concerned they are treating the death of Christ as if it, they were not saved by it and are holding him up again to public disgrace. Now, and there's also 7 and 8 that goes with this, but uh, I want to stop there. I mean, this is important to note that, you know, these people, he's saying that it is impossible to restore to repentance. Now, notice that some of this comes from the Amplified. So, let me, let me read this without some of the amplification. 
For those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted and consciously experienced the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted and consciously experienced the good word of God and the word and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, <clears throat> it is impossible to bring them back again to repentance. Since they nail, they again nail the Son of God on the cross and are holding him up again to public disgrace. Now, all we're getting at here is that these people have, they have consciously, you know, tasted and experienced this salvation, but they've not gone any deeper, they've not gone any further, and so it's, it's almost impossible to bring them back into the fold, to bring them back in, because they, they don't, I don't think, because they don't go any deeper, they never go any deeper, I think they never really understand and they don't get the true concept. And so it's it becomes almost impossible to bring them back in because they think, oh, I experienced all there was. I'm I'm done with that. I've moved on. And um, so it's you know if someone goes through all that and consciously experiences all of that. Now we do not experience like the powers of the the Holy Spirit like they, like they did back then. So. Um, so that would not really so much be an issue, but nonetheless, um, they, they, they taste it, they experience it, they never grow beyond, and so they never understand more than that, and so they, they move on and they lose sight of it. And then there is also the case of, again, due to immaturity, for soil that drinks the rain which often falls on it and produces crops, this is verses 7 and 8, for soil that drinks the rain which often falls on it and produces crops, useful to those for whose benefit it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it persistently produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. So here, too, those who 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 never mature, but they they hear the, the message of salvation <clears throat> and they come let's say they they come to services all the time, but all they hear and all they believe is the, the message of salvation, but they continue to live on the same old way, producing the thorns and thistles of a sinful life. They just keep living the same old way. They don't truly change or, or get beyond that because they don't they don't learn and grow beyond that then they're not producing anything. They're not really, um, you know, we should produce a crop of something. You know, even if you only manage to help or save one person in your entire life, at least, at least that is something. You know, even that is something. But, but if all you do is just continue to live the same sinful life and keep doing the same things and you never grow beyond or out of that, then... You know, we're close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. In other words, we won't truly, will we truly be, you know, saved in the end? Will we truly have salvation if we, if we don't have any good uh, crop or any good fruit that we've produced? If we've not done something good, if we've not produced through our faith, because uh, faith requires action, which we're going to get into that too. Uh, the Hebrew writer, really, this is all explaining Jesus, again, Jesus, the new covenant, faith, how, how everything is working. So, 
I don't want to belabor that, but that's an, that's an important warning here uh, to not fall away and to help others not fall away through immaturity, but to help teach them and, and encourage them to grow beyond that. But he continues on, the Hebrew writer, in that, uh, that basically saying that he expects, you know, he expects better from them and he knows he doesn't believe that they will, you know, have that issue or that they will grow beyond that issue. Um, but he talks about um, God's promise to Abraham and our hope in Christ because, of course, Jesus is the culmination of the promise to Abraham, just as Abraham offered Isaac, and, and God you know, did not take Isaac, but Abraham made the offering as if he were giving sacrifice in Isaac. God, in turn, offered his son, you know, and, and Jesus made that sacrifice and, and used his blood to, uh, to cleanse us. And we're going to get into that too, but this hits, uh, so here we have, talking about God's promise to Abraham and Christ being that fulfillment and that being for us, okay? So verse 19 and 20, this hope, this confident assurance we have as an anchor of the soul, it cannot slip and it cannot break under whatever pressure bears upon it, a safe and steadfast hope that enters within the veil of the heavenly temple that most holy place in which the very presence of God dwells, where Jesus has entered in advance as a forerunner of uh, for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, and he has entered in to the beyond the you know beyond the veil into the presence of God always for us. And that's going to, you know, all these things are going to be spoken about by the Hebrew writer uh, in, in chapter 7. If we continue on, it ta he talks more about Jesus being a priest like Melchizedek. And we can see this, let me uh, get us to verse 17. Well, there's, okay. There we go. For it is attested by God of him. Now this is verse 17, and we are in chapter 7 now. For it is attested by God of him. You, Christ, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then there is further explanation, and, and the Hebrew writer does a very good job here, but, but I'm just trying to give us a quick summary, kind of a recap. So we're going to skip down to verses 26 and 27. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, perfectly adapted to our needs, holy, blameless, unstained by sin, separated from sinners, and exalted higher than the heavens, who has no day-by-day -day need like those high priests to offer sacrifices, first of all for his own personal sins, and then for those of the people, because he met all the requirements, did this once for all when he offered up himself as a willing sacrifice. See, he did not need because he was he lived a perfect life and he was the perfect sacrifice himself. He did not need, does not need, he does not need to offer any more sacrifices for himself. 
He does not offer sacrifices for himself because he lived a perfect life. There was no need. So, and there is no need. See, human priests would have to offer sacrifices for themselves all the time, and he, he did not need to do that. And this made him our perfect high priest in that order. And in chapter 8, the Hebrew writer talks about the new covenant, how it's superior to the old covenant. And we're going to hit on this very quickly with just a few verses, um, as soon as I find them, of course. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one, or an attempt to institute another one, the new covenant. And then if we look down again at verses 10 through 12, let me find that. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will imprint my laws upon their minds, even upon their innermost thoughts and understanding, and engrave them upon their hearts, affecting their regeneration. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And it will not be necessary for each one to teach his fellow citizen, or each one his brother, saying, No, by experience have knowledge of the Lord, for all will know me by experience and have knowledge of me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful and gracious toward their wickedness, and I will, I will remember their sins no more. So this is the new covenant, and it is far superior to the old covenant. And indeed, nowadays we really can. We can sit down and we can study our Bibles and learn and we can still share and, and talk and teach each other. Certainly, we do that all the time. But you could sit down, if you wanted to, with just your Bible and, and learn everything yourself. I mean, you know, there is, there is that fact. I mean, it is a fact. If you, were, if you were the only Christian you knew your whole life, you could sit down with your Bible and, and manage and learn. And it would not be necessary for each one to teach his fellow citizen. Because um, we're all citizens of the kingdom. But, while it is not totally necessary, I think it is still very beneficial for us to, to share and teach one another and to encourage one another. And this is not in any way something that's trying to imply that you should not. He's just saying that he will imprint his law on our heart if we will seek him. And how do we seek him? Through his word. So... All right, and then if we move to uh, chapter 9, there is a comparison, more comparison of the covenants, but um, in a different way. This is, let's see, let's look at verses 10, 11 through 12. This is um, about Christ and his blood. And his sacrifice for us. Okay. This is verse 10. For they, the gifts, sacrifices, and ceremonies, deal only with clean and unclean food and drink and various ritual washings, mere external regulations for the body imposed to help the worshipers until the time of reformation, that is, the time of the new order when Christ will establish the reality of what these things foreshadow, a better covenant. So the old covenant was all about rituals and just, you know, external cleanliness and purification and you know all that type of thing to teach and to help uh, help them learn and prepare for the new covenant the better covenant 
which is what Christ has brought. So in verses 11 and 12, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, that is, true spiritual worship, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not a part of this material creation, not a part of the earth here. He went once for all into the holy place, the holy of holies in heaven, into the presence of God, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, having obtained and secured eternal redemption, that is, the salvation of all who personally believe in him as Savior. So, that is, that is where Christ is. He has gone in with his blood, which is the perfect blood, the more, the more perfect and powerful blood. And he has obtained redemption for us with that sacrifice, with that offering. Now, in verse 15, he also mentions that uh, Christ is mediator for us. For this reason, he is the mediator and negotiator of a new covenant that is an entirely new agreement uniting God and man, so that those who have been called by God may receive the fulfillment of the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has taken place as the payment which redeems them from sins committed under the obsolete first covenant. So, we have been cleansed and forgiven of those things and of our sins, period. And now, and he speaks more of this sacrifice down in verses 26 through 28. And this is, I believe, this is the end of the chapter. <coughs> so, um, all right. And here he's talking about for Jesus, this, this was one eternal sacrifice. <clears throat> and um, this is one eternal sacrifice until he returns to, you know, to bring true salvation and bring us to heaven. This is the one eternal sacrifice for us. That uh, is why he does not need to do this over and over. Um, so verses 26 through 28. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer over and over since the foundation of the world. But now, once for all, at the consummation of the ages, he has appeared and been publicly manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as is, and just as it is appointed and destined for all men to die once, and after, <clears throat> and after this comes certain judgment, so Christ, having been offered once in once and once for all to bear as a burden the sins of many will appear a second time when he returns to earth not to deal with sin but to bring salvation to those who are eagerly and confidently awaiting him. So he offered this one eternal sacrifice. Now this is going to be continued on in chapter 10. Now in chapter 10 he still talks about one eternal sacrifice. You know, he's still making a little bit of this comparison. So we're going to move down to verse 14. Alright. For by the one offering, he has perfected forever and completely cleansed those who are being sanctified, bringing each believer to spiritual completion and maturity. So each of us are, forget, are being completely cleansed 
from his one his one eternal sacrifice we are um, perfectly we are perfected forever and completely cleansed by his 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 offering his sacrifice so now in verses 17 and 18 and their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more no longer hold their sins against them now where there is absolute forgiveness and complete cancellation of the penalty of these things there is no longer any offering to be made to atone for sin so he made this one eternal sacrifice this one eternal offering and it is it is it continues there is no more but it continues it is a continual cleansing and perfection as long as we remain faithful and repent and and keep working and keep trying then we are we will be you know we'll be forgiven and we'll be able to keep moving forward and thus we're encouraged to you know to encourage one another and to live as we should to live in the new way to live following Christ and following his example if we look at uh, verses 23 through 25 let us seize and hold tightly the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is reliable and trustworthy and faithful to his word and let us consider thoughtfully how we may encourage one another to love and to do good deeds not forsaking our meeting together as believers for worship and instruction as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more faithfully as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. See, these verses are intended to be an encouragement. They're not intended to be something that you use to browbeat people into coming to church services. This is supposed to be an encouragement. You know, um, let us encourage, let's consider thoughtfully how we can encourage one another to love and to do good deeds and then he says, not forsaking meeting together, as is the habit of some. So he's, you know, he's saying, look, we, we should want to come together and be together. And, you know, but it's not like, it's not supposed to be a legalistic thing. And we kind of get in our Pharisee type minds and we want to beat people over the head with this and say, oh, you're forsaking the assembly. And, and that's not the purpose. That's not the purpose at all. We're supposed to encourage one another. You know, how can we? encourage one another to love and do good deeds that is a part of assembling together though that we we meet together and we 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 talk about these things we share and uh, and we we're and we're taught and we we learn from the from the word and we're taught how to do these things you know so so just saying that that was meant to be you know encouraging and good but here's the hammer we want to be encouraged and we want to follow this and do well because we want to avoid judgment in verses 26 and 27 for if we go on willfully and deliberately sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice to atone for our sin that is no further offering to anticipate but a kind of awful and terrifying expectation of divine judgment and the fury of a fire and burning wrath which will consume the adversaries, those who put themselves in opposition to God. So we don't want to be in that. So see, you have the encouragement here previously, 
And then you have this saying, look, we don't want to go on willfully sinning and deliberately sinning. We want to live and act appropriately, encouraging one another. Now, meeting together and getting together and learning and sharing and, and, and being taught, that is all very important and it's very good. I'm just saying the sometimes the way we present things in a almost a Pharisee type situation is just not the best way to present it. It's not the way to go about it. That's all. That's all I'm really saying. Um, definitely, we want to uh, get together as often as we reasonably can. Alright, so then we move on to chapter 11. Now in chapter 11, the Hebrew writer is really talking about the heroes of faith. All of these people, they believed God and they took action. And I'm just going to give us like one example here. In verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called by God, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went not knowing where he was going. So he just went. Then, if we look down in verse 13, there's another part to this. All these Old Testament people that, that are mentioned here, these, these heroes of faith, they all died in faith without ever seeing the fruition, the fulfillment of that promise, which was Jesus. And we can read this in verse 13. All these died in faith, guided and sustained by it, without receiving the tangible fulfillment of God's promises, only having seen, anticipated them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So, all of these people, they did not see the fulfillment of the promise, which was Jesus, but they believed and they had faith in God and they took action, they believed in him and followed him, and, and they died in that faith. Which, well, now, we say all, but I think Enoch and a few of them, there's a few people who actually did not die in faith. If we remember, they were, they were taken. So, but the rest, the rest died in faith. So in verse 12, I mean chapter 12, I'm sorry. So chapter 12, now, there's a lot in chapter 12, a lot of things. It's uh, Jesus is our example. So I want to read, you know, verses 1 through 3 first. Jesus is our example to focus on and follow. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those mentioned in the previous chapter, chapter 11, the heroes of faith is what I call that. And I think a lot of other people call it that or something similar. Uh, not like that's an original thing for me. Anyway, um, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us, let us run with endurance and active persistence the race that is set before us, looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, the first incentive for our belief in the one who brings our faith to maturity, who for the joy of accomplishing the goal set before him, endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, revealing his 
deity, his authority, and the completion of his work. Just consider and meditate on him who endured from sinners such bitter hostility against himself. Consider it all in comparison with your trials so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So if we will focus on Jesus and take him as our example and compare you know, what he went through with what we go, go through, we should not grow weary and lose heart. We should, you know, we should be able to sustain ourselves with him as our example and thinking about, well, if he went through all of that, surely I can go through this. I'm, for me, I, I would say most of my trials are fairly minor compared to what the Lord went through. So, now, um, he also talks about, in verse 7, talks about, you know, heeding discipline from God um, and submitting to God's discipline, which is basically his teaching, learning from God. In other words, learning from God, you know, in our case, is learning from God through, through his word. Um, you must submit to correction for the purpose of discipline. God is dealing with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In other words, we all teach our children how to behave and how to do and, you know, how to be. And so God, in turn, teaches us through his word. We're encouraged to live peaceably with others and, and moral lives. Um, you can see this down in verses 14 through 16. It's just very quick continually pursue peace with everyone and the sanctification without which no one will ever see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of God's grace, that no root of resentment springs up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And see to it that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. So, you know, we should live you know, peaceful and moral lives, believing and trusting in God. See, Esau did not believe and trust in God, and he sold that birthright, thinking, you know, not valuing it at all, just thinking it was nothing. And then, at the, at the end of this, he speaks of heaven being the unshakable kingdom, the unshaking, the unshaken kingdom. I'm sorry, the unshaken kingdom. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, it can't be upset or thrown around, you know what I mean? It can't be shaken, like if you imagine an earthquake, you know, it can't be shaken. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude and offer to God pleasing service and acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is indeed a consuming fire. I did throw in verse 29 there at the end, just because it all goes together. So we should you know, receive this with thanksgiving and praising God and uh, and offering pleasing service and acceptable worship. Then we move on to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the last, and he speaks of love and hospitality. We should remember to always show love and hospitality to others. And this is shown in the first three verses. Let love of your fellow believers continue. Do not neglect to extend hospitality to strangers. Now this says especially among the family of believers, but if they're strangers, you're not necessarily going to know they're believers. So 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that part of the amplification and I'm going to say, well, yes, because that is said by Paul in several other places, especially among believers. But, and, but he already says in verse 1, let love of your fellow believers continue. But here, this is really not meant to be about fellow believers. This is, do not neglect to extend hospitality to strangers. Being friendly, cordial, and gracious, sharing the comforts of your home, and doing your part generously. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. See, a stranger would not be someone you would know or know as a believer. So, I don't think... Hmm, I don't think that little phrase, especially among the family of believers, really belongs. It's okay to say that because that, that is a true thing and that if you know a stranger is a believer, but how do you know they're a stranger? That's uh, kind of a, you know, you kind of enter that paradox where both doesn't, doesn't seem to be possible to me. But, I mean, again, there are people who at least claim to be believers or, you know, you would think is a believer that is a stranger to you, so it's not totally inappropriate, it just seems a little off. But nonetheless, so let love of your fellow believers continue. Do not neglect to extend hospitality to strangers. And then remember those, this is verse 3, remember those who are in prison, as if you are their fellow prisoner and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body and subject to physical suffering. So we should remember others and, you know, have love and hospitality for them and help them what we can. And, you know, these are, this is difficult um, sometimes because we don't, we're untrusting of strangers, we're untrusting of people in prison. I mean, I'm sorry, that's, it's true. It's a, it's a human failing of ours that we're not very trusting. Now, I'm not saying we should, you know, endanger ourselves in any way but surely there's something we could do to to help out in some way if i figure out you know for each of us that might be a little different figuring out how to do that all right then we should also have moral character and this is just down in verse 5 we should have moral character let your character your moral essence your inner nature be free from the love of money Shun greed, be financially ethical, being content with what you have, for he has said, I will never under any circumstances desert you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support, nor will I in any degree leave you helpless, nor will I forsake you, or let you down, or relax my hold on you, assuredly not. So, we should have moral character, realizing that we you know that being content with what we have and realizing too that God is our source and that he will take care of us and he will not leave us and not forsake us and that he will help us and aid us and then we move down to verse 8 verse 8 basically says Jesus is always the same Jesus Christ is eternally changeless always, the same yesterday and today and forever. So he does not change, okay? So therefore, in verse 9, we should not be carried away by diverse strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established and strengthened by grace 
and not by foods, rules of diet, and ritualistic meals, which bring no benefit or spiritual growth to those who observe them. Also, we have to realize that this, this applies, while it does apply to foods, it also applies to a lot of the other old ritualistic things. So, you know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not change. So, so the teachings, the, what we're learning here, is not going to change. Do not be carried away by strange teaching, by diverse or different teaching. We need to make sure that we're following the Lord and not getting caught up with that. Um, a big problem they had back then were they were being sucked back into the law and following circumcision and following food rules and, and a lot of other odd teachings um, that we necessarily wouldn't fall, in, fall into or fall for today. However, there are other wrong teachings that we do fall for, unfortunately. Um, because as people we have flaws and we tend to have you know we tend to make errors so and then we teach those errors and those errors get handed down and and that happens it's it's uh, we're not perfect and sometimes you know there's a reason for these things sometimes it's a simple um, mistake someone's mistaken and then they learn better later and they try to get that corrected and we're all doing that. We're all learning and trying to correct as we go. Then, in verse 15, he tells us to always offer praise. It says, Through him, therefore, let us at all times offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips that thankfully acknowledge and confess and glorify his name. So we should always be offering up this fruit of praise and glorifying God and thanking Him and acknowledge Him and glorifying His name and thanking the Lord and blessing Him and thanking Him for all He has done for us. And then after that, uh, chapter 13 is mainly, you know, some like a kind of a blessing and, and asking for prayers and uh, talking about, uh, you know, grace be with you all. Give our greetings to all your spiritual leaders, to all of, all of the saints. Those from Italy send you their greetings. It's that kind of, you know, kind of ending the letter from there on. So, that is my summary of Hebrews. Now, I know this has ran very long, about an hour, and it took me a while to sit down and do this summary and I hope I have just done it some justice okay so that so that our study here of Hebrews is complete and at least good enough um, good enough for us for now until we can learn and grow and do more in God's Word so I wanna thank you for listening I know it's been very long thank you for listening Understand that uh, with the length of this and, and with everything that I've done to prepare for this that uh, I may be a little short this week on, on some other studies, but I will try to pick up from here and do more, okay? So thank you for listening. Hope you have a wonderful day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And remember, God loves you.